0: It's uh, a great pleasure to, to welcome you to the, the law department's contribution to this uh, Off the Edge Festival. Um, I'm not sure that sort of at first glance um, law and literature is an especially vertiginous leap off the edge, or spin off the edge. Um, the, the edge is so well trodden as to become a, a sort of field in its own right. Um, but I guess if, if you want the sort of vertiginous effect, I hope it's going to emerge from the way in which we um, interrogate um, or think through um, the text of Jekyll and Hyde. Um, and we have a really, um, I guess, the, the, the four perfect people I think, to talk us through or develop a conversation about Jekyll and Hyde, um, which may be in some sense focused on on law's own uh, bipolarity. Um, in his quasi autobiographical text, Christ uh, um Levi Strauss, the anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss, um, recounts his experience of, um, in Paris thinking he should go and try his hand at law simply to sort of dabble and see what this law thing was all about. Um, and he emerged extremely disappointed. He said basically, law turned out to be this. Um, improbable mix or combination of theology and the tabloid press. (laughs) So on the one hand, you had the exegesis of venerable authorities and righteous instrumentality. And on the other hand, you had the enjoyment of the base material of society, of the rabble. Um, So I guess, hopefully, we're going to be exploring some of that um, bipolarity. So let me introduce our speakers in the order in which they will speak. Um, beginning with with, uh, my colleague Nikki Lacey uh, from the Law Department here at the LSE, who is, if I may say so, uh, simply the most innovative and distinctive and influential um, thinker in terms of political theory and social theory and economy and history. Um, You get a sense of the breadth of the agenda um, of criminal law. Um, She has for some time been focusing on questions of women and crime and construction of criminality uh, most recently in the form of the exploration of literature, certain literary texts as a kind of medium or mirror for the um, evolution of legal notions of responsibility um, and these are represented in my most recent work, Women, Crime and Character which tells of a shift from uh, Moll Flanders to Tess of the um, next um, Robert Lyle um, who is or was the editor of the Penguin Classic Edition of um, Jekyll and Hyde, and the author of an extremely thought-provoking um, work on um, gothic fiction called The Geography of Victorian Gothic Fiction, M- Mapping History's Nightmare. Um, I'm going at this point to, to quote from uh, one of Robert's fans on the Amazon website, Um, describing his his work on gothic fiction. It's it's from a fan in New Orleans um, and it says the following "Um, I mean, that guy is darker than the bottom of a bayou (laughs) a very dark, particularly spooky bayou probably haunted (laughs) and yet, uh, Robert is probably best known and most recently known for his, his book, Sunshine which is a cultural split. <laughs> uh, a cultural history of heliophilia. The story of a personal joyous addiction to the sun. Um, in, in sunshine, at a certain point, Robert is very careful to say that he's a purist about the sun. He has never, except in the spirit of experiment, ventured into a salon or used a sunbed. Um, so. Um, I take it that uh, we can safely say that Robert has actually not been tinctured by the very darkness he was trying to describe earlier. His most recent book is a biography of Keats, um, which may or may not be on the um, the, the table um, side. Our next speaker will be Mary Evans, uh, currently visiting professor at the Gender Institute here at the LSE. She's the author of a number of social, theoretical, historical works on literature, including, um, I should say, even though it's not the same genre we're talking about, a really remarkable work on Jane Austen and the state, um, which um, I think of and read as a very timely kind of remedy to the sort of um, period costume drama approach to um, Jane Austen, that one sees on television and film. She has more recently been exploring relations between crime, writing, and the social and cultural fabrication of evil. And her latest um, work is on what I call a kind of literary sociology of detective fiction, which is entitled The Pursuit of Evil, Detective Fiction and the Modern World. Our last speaker will be um, Juliet Mitchell who has recently uh, started as the director of a doctoral program in theoretical psychoanalysis at UCLA? Um, Juliet is one of the pioneering and most influential voices in psychoanalysis and feminism. The editor and commentator on Sigmund Freud, Melanie Klein, Jacques Lacan, um, a collaborator with uh, uh, Juliet Kristeva, Jacqueline Rose, and all of the, the luminaries of the, um, the, the feminist and cyclical writing movement. She is also, and this is a connection to to, uh, to our first speaker, Nikki, she has also um, wrote the introduction to Marthorne's Penguin Classics edition, and she's written widely on various works of literature and authors, Henry James, Tolstoy, Shakespeare, and so on. So um, I hope you'll agree with me that we have the perfect speakers for, for this event. What they um, will be doing, what we will be doing, is basically each of our speakers will throw out a few prompts for thought in the form of questions or observations, um, and then we will take discussion from there and at a certain point invite you to um, um, throw in your own um, observations and questions. So, um, thank
1: Thank you, Alan, for that lovely introduction and thank you all for, for being here. Um, I'd like to just, I'm really going to just explain to you how as a lawyer I came to Jekyll and Hyde and why I'm particularly interested in it and then we'll follow that up with the themes that uh, the more expert people on this panel will be putting in. But I think it's appropriate to start just with an acknowledgement um, of what an extraordinarily beautiful piece of writing Jekyll and Hyde is. Um, I always feel that as an academic who's come to use literature as a resource in various ways, there is a sense in which I'm sort of plundering something which has an integrity of its own. And particularly given that the, the, this is Stevenson as poet as well as, as marvellous prose writer and plot crafter, it's a, it's a, book in which every word drops its own weight and uh, Robert I think very justly remarks in his introduction to the Penguin edition that um, it's a book in which you find something new every time you read it it really, although it's the story that has, has its hold on the popular imagination the actual crafting of the story in Stevenson's prose is really a very extraordinary thing Um, Now, I nonetheless became interested in Decker and Hyde for quite instrumental academic purposes and Alain has really given you the beginning of of the story and that is that I've been interested for some time in what is often seen as a sort of significant change between the late 17th century and the late 19th century between a conception of criminality and of criminal responsibility as founded in evil or bad character towards a much more psychological notion of criminal responsibility in which the question of the offender's responsibility for what they've done becomes comes to be constructed in far more psychological terms and particularly in terms of the idea of somebody being both conscious of what they're doing and having normal faculties of self-control. So we don't hold people responsible, we pretend not to hold people responsible, unless they have those powers of understanding and control. Um, and I have begun to have my doubts about the sort of neatness of this teleology, of this idea that you see a sort of gradual displacement of older ideas of criminality is founded in bad character towards this more as it were scientific notion of criminality or criminal responsibility as founded in the proof of certain psychological capacities as being engaged. And so I decided to do a sort of fairly in-depth study of the mental incapacity defences in criminal law in the late 19th century because I thought if there at a time when the psychological model was meant to have pretty much triumphed, and in an area where if it had triumphed anywhere, well surely you would find it pretty completely reflected in the area of insanity and mental incapacity, then if I still nonetheless found traces of the idea of criminality as based in bad character there, then that really was quite a significant finding. Those of you who've read Jekyll and Hyde recently will immediately understand why I became very interested in Jekyll and Hyde. Because I think the very fascinating thing that the story does is that it holds together um, three what we might call completely different cosmologies. On the one hand, and these are probably the things that are most famous about Jekyll and Hyde, um, Mr Hyde is atavistic. He's a troglodyte, he's a throwback. Coming out of emerging evolutionary theory, there's the idea that criminality is a sort of throwback to a degenerate or a primitive past. That theme is very strong in Jekyll and Hyde. Second theme, um, Hyde is the product of Jekyll's insanity, the sort of quasi-medical theme, the scientific theme that you like, the medical scientific Um, But there's a third theme, and it's the one that I was most interested in, really, and that is the theme of Hyde as evil. At various points, Stevenson uses very explicit biblical language. Hyde is the slime of the pit appearing on earth. Very, very vivid language. Um, And these three completely different ways of understanding criminality or criminal behaviour uh, are held together beautifully within the story. They don't appear to be fighting with each other really um, and I think that interested me because of course in academic work we tend to look for and indeed impose very neat structures on social reality and it's a really teasing idea that character responsibility is gradually displaced by capacity responsibility. But, of course, the world is very much more complex than that. And that complexity is reflected in the Victorian idea of moral insanity, which was a sort of glue that held different understandings of crime together. In the literary world, these understandings lived together perfectly happily. Briefly, there were two other specific things that came out-objection point for me. Um, the first I was aware of before I read the book, and it was actually one of the things that led me to the book, and that was that by the time we get to the late 19th century in this country, um, we have a very well-developed system of criminal regulation. The, the state has become very proud of its capacity to uh, regulate criminal behaviour, to punish effectively and so um, what we also see in that, particularly the latter part of the 19th century, is what, something that is close to a social obsession with states of double consciousness, with things like mesmerism, hypnotism, sleepwalking, these sorts of phenomena, um, described by one of the best historians of this period as being a bit like, you know, the, Vic- the Victorians were a bit like. Uh, People with a fear of snakes who somehow can't keep out the reptile house at the zoo—they keep revisiting this. And why was that? Well, I think the, the a plausible argument about it is that that late Victorian project of regulation was hugely dependent on the assumption that human beings are are capable psychological subjects who are unified in some sense who know what's going on and control their behavior. And the idea that there's this other side to the human mind, which is evoked in mesmerism, which arises voluntarily, involuntarily, in sleepwalking and so on, was deeply threatening to that project of regulation. And you see that emerging very strongly, I think, in Jekyll and Hyde, uh, as you do in the picture and even earlier in the century as you do in the book like James Hogg's Confessions of Justified Sinner which also like Jethro and Hyde holds together these very different cosmologies on the one hand a religious theological cosmology and on the other a much more psychological one Now Dorian Gray uh, brings me to the, the third and final theme that I'm very interested in in the book and that is uh, the question of the recognition of criminality. Um, the question of how we recognise and identify criminal behaviour, how we distinguish between criminality and normal behaviour, is, is that has always been a troubling thing socially, but it became increasingly troubling as we moved into a more urbanised, anonymous, individualistic world, and also a world that's more... Pluralistic in terms of what people thought about right and wrong. Um, And so, again, the Victorian period in this country displays a lot of uh, anxiety, but also a lot of productive political and institutional development about how we go about identifying crime. We have, for example, uh, the whole business of the introduction of the statistics, the application of evolutionary theory, some of these images that Alain has cleverly put on the, um, on the screen evoke that, and in the latter part of the century we had uh, special statutes identifying particular categories of criminal, the inebriate, the feeble-minded, trying to sort of create recognisable categories so we can tell who's a real criminal, as it were. But there's an anxiety about this, and Jekyll and Hyde takes us deep, deep, deep down into the (laughs) bio, the dark bio of that anxiety. Because although, on the one hand, Hyde, whenever people see Hyde, they always find him repellent, and Stevenson really emphasizes this, everybody knows that Hyde is a bad lot. But on the other hand, if Hyde is Jekyll, then criminality is entirely unrecognizable and so that I think is the deepest fear in a way that is reflected in the horror of this story so I'll leave it there
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I you said, maybe, I'm just finishing my note, if I may. I was talking about this, so. Okay, while Robert, while Robert finishes
1: his note, let me just also say that one of the interesting things about the double personality, double consciousness uh, aspect of Jekyll and Hyde, which is in a way its most obvious structural quality, um, is that it also leads into a, a, a more radical theme, which actually Robert pointed out to all of us in our, the email exchange that we had before meeting today of actual dual legal identity in the sense that, unlike the Dorian Gray thing, where it's just a human being and a changing image, (coughs) Jekyll and Hyde are two different people to the extent that (laughs) Jekyll intends to leave his property to Hyde, and so we're very lucky that Alain, as well as Cherry, is actually a very sophisticated kind of property lawyer, and we'll probably call on him.
2: (laughs) (coughs) <coughs> no, so something you said about uh, the, uh, the visibility of evil and um, and Dorian Gray as well, because I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting in in both texts actually is the way that they they try to rely upon this idea that uh, evil writes itself across the face. Um, mm-hmm. So that there is that framework in place and they're, they're trying to kind of have that operate and, and that be an index to truth, but it doesn't for this very reason, holds, you know, um, the understanding, the revelation at the end is that this evil thing was inside is inside Jekyll, who is the sort of the, the class antithesis, but also the physical antithesis of, of Hyde, so they're constantly stressing the difference between them. Um, so that there is this kind of idea that this should work, but it doesn't work, it fails for this reason. And in Dorian Gray as well, there, there's this kind of alibi, they both have these alibis, where this logic still exists. The logic is still there, that evil is a physical, does leave a physical trace in the portrait of Dorian Gray, or the kind of, the stamp it's called on Hyde, the reason he's so ugly. It's so different, the absolute opposite. Of Jekyll. So it's interesting to think, well, you know, this still is in place and they're exploring it. And I think that is that's an example of, of what the text does. It sets up this framework of expectations that explores and prone <laughs> and, and gets almost to the very, very end within this framework. Utterson's um, the main investigator, he's acting like a, a detective in it, and he's trying to get to the bottom of it. And everything that that should work according to his rational paradigm, everything that should lead to the revelation, cannot. There's a very interesting point where they, they look at the handwriting, and he gives it to his clerk, who happens to be an expert on handwriting, and he says, well, they, they look at Hyde's handwriting, and, and he says, well, it's just, it's just the, the Jekylls in reverse. So Artisan thinks, would he forge for him? Secondly, you know, he's just kind of his mind is set within this this uh, this understanding, this framework, and of course within law, handwriting is a very very important way of identifying identity <laughs> itself. So really, at this point, he you know there should be this revelation, but of course there can't be because the reason um, everything doesn't make sense is brilliantly revealed at the end, not until the very last paragraph of Dr. Lanyon's narrative, which is the penultimate one in, in the text, do we know that two people are really one? And that's the most extraordinary um, narrative tour de force that he manages to pull. But also I think what we forget, uh, because we know so much about uh, Dr. Mr. Hyde, mm-hmm. I was astonished when I was working on it um, how many people haven't actually read it. Everyone knows what it's about. They say, I'm working on Jack on Hyde, and they sort make a joke about it. Uh, nothing to do with sunshine, having this kind of split personality, nobody knows things. Um, I said, Well, have you read it? They said, No. And I was discussing it last night, and everyone I spoke to knew what it was all about, but they hadn't read it. We have this understanding of Jack on Hyde. It's an idea, it's an idea that exists. It's trumped out every single time that. Uh, some serial killer didn't spend all of his time bumping people off. You know, they say oh, well, you know, a real Jekyll and Hyde is occasionally you know, patted a, a puppy or something like that. <laughs> and so people have got this idea, and, it, and it's this idea that, um, in a sense, the, the idea that one person is, is somehow multiple and, and, and fractured, and there are different parts of them. And, and we see this, you know, we, we, we bring in schizophrenia and things like that, and think that that's what Jekyll and Hyde is about. It's not about that. It's about what the hell can these two very different people have to do with each other? Why is this uh, person, Henry Jekyll, who, whose whole desire is to be very, very respectable, to be, um, to be respected by his, by his peers, to, to hold his head up high, he said. Hyde he said, uh, was produced by his desire, an inordinate desire, to hold his head high. Interestingly, he wants to be tall. This thing that he produces can't hold its head high. It, it, it's much shorter, and, and plays made on that uh, when they're bursting into Jekyll's, uh, Jekyll's uh, uh, cabinet, it's called, where, where they can hear something pacing up and down. And Utterson, rational as ever, says, um, can you describe it? And he this was a dwarf. He said, "Are you sure of that?" He said, "Do you think I don't know where my where my master's head is on on the door frame each day?" So there's this idea that yes, he does hold his head high, and he's produced this monstrosity. And I've completely lost my thread. <laughs> That's it. The idea that uh, the idea that two people are one, all the way to the to the to the very end, and I think that is what makes it a very, very rich mystery. I think whenever we read it, we've always got to remember that, because all of the logical steps, all of the kind of breadcrumbs that lead to the end, don't lead anywhere, really. They really do not lead anywhere until you get to this revelation. And even then it doesn't wholly make sense. There are slips in the logic, and, and you say every word with sort of full out. I don't think every word was, sometimes you've got to, see, I think, Jack, I think uh, Stevenson made a mistake here, I think because when, and, and the interesting thing is where there's this kind of tumbling around and slippage of language where he says things like, um, he, I cannot say, "I." Mm. that's a deliberate one. But when Hyde is, is there with his potion, he's gone to lanyons and he's mixed up the, the, the potion and he's he stands he stands with it bubbling there, and and, and its hide taunting Lanyon, and that's very much Jekyll. That's Jekyll um, because he's saying um, something like triumphantly this kind of hubristic statement about uh, you know, If uh, are you prepared to learn? Are you prepared to, or remain high bound all your life? He's you know, kind of sneering him for Lanyon for his inability <coughs> to sort of expand his his physical. Uh, Paradigm of the world, his logical paradigm, to encounter the supernatural, and he said, "You know, if you are sworn under our profession, and obviously our, unless Hyde is actually qualified for medic while while he's been doing all this, doesn't apply." So there are these, there are these interesting slips, and some of them are down to I think just, you know, he wrote it very very quickly. He had the dream, he drafted out the narrative, and redrafted a few times. But it's written very very quickly. I think that, this kind of slipping around the way that even with the supernatural explanation, even with this kind of master key that you get to at the end, it still doesn't unlock the whole of the narrative. You still have to go back and think, well, what's a mistake and what's an interesting aspect there. Finally, yes, my interest as a literary critic who has sort of... Uh, become interested in, in medicine and, and legal cases, etc. It's really to have some of the more straightforward answers about law, not so much criminal responsibility, the, the, that that's the exciting part. The you know, yeah, murders, yeah, how were they on were they in their right mind when they when they when they committed the, the crime? And that goes into the court of law and that sensation of course. I'm really interested in this more boring, mundane, you know, what was the legal standing of that kind of idea at the time? Because that, you know, that is what they're operating on up until that last moment. It is you know, two people are on one. Can this be done? Can can, um, can Jekyll put in his will that Hyde would be able to uh, um, inherit his his property on his disappearance? Would that work? Because that's within the national framework. Before we cross over into the other side everything's thrown up in the air, and it becomes metaphysical and preternatural. That's <laughs> my <laughs> interest. Thank you. Um,
3: thank you. Um, what I wanted to start by um, describing uh, this morning, or, or reading, uh, a couple of quotations um, by, uh, in one case, Claire Harmon, who has written a biography of Robert Louis Stevenson because what I want to do is to go some way, in what I have to say, uh, towards talking about Stevenson's life, his biography, his links to the social world of the late 19th century, and some of his connections to other people um, who have written about mental illness, instability, evil, at around about the same time. Now, one of the things that Claire Harmon says right at the beginning of of her biography is the paternal line dominates Robert Louis Stevenson's family history. Um, and it's something of a throwaway line, which some of us might think needs a bit more unpicking. You know, we don't throw out remarks like, you know, the paternal line dominates this history quite so casually, days. Um, at least some of us might think there's something more to think about. There. And what I want to from something that Virginia Woolf wrote towards the end of her life when she was trying to write her own autobiography and when she was looking back on her childhood and adolescence one of the things that she was trying to understand were what she described as the violent rages of her father Leslie Stephen and she said there was something blind animal savage in them Roger Fry said that civilization meant awareness, but he was uncivilized in his extreme unawareness. And I think what Woolf is is doing in that quotation, reflecting on that experience of somebody who, in, actually, in her own life, seems to turn in real life into this exactly the same character of Geoffrey and Hyde. On the one side, a scholarly kind. discussion of how human beings can change, how human beings in reality can be both extremely kind, quiet, and on the other hand, extremely violent, extremely um, furious, is something which has infused the hundred years or so since Stevenson wrote uh, Jekyll and Hyde. What I wanted to do with that then is make three points about it, I suppose, and go in three different First, is that it does seem to me, that it has seemed to me since Jekyll Hyde was written and has, as both Nikki and Robert have said, has been very much absorbed into our culture, that this notion of Jekyll and Hyde has been hugely useful for many institutions and that remains the case today, that the notion of good, evil, that kind of binary fits very perfectly with certain kinds of political. At the same time, what it ignores is something which students wrote about very vividly, I think, in Jacqueline Hyde, and that is the pain of transformation from, norm- from quiet, civilized normality into rage, savage anger, and inability to control oneself. He writes about that transformation. Our social world, but at the same time, from the end of the 19th century, of course, there is.
4: I'm now so interested in what everybody else has said, I've almost mm. forgotten what I wanted to say. But what mm. I'm actually hoping to do is to try and suggest a connection between two, to me, rather key lines within the book. How many people, by the way, have read the book in this audience? That's a lot. That's one. Quite a lot of you. Quite a lot have, but OK. Well, the, the two lines are one from uh, Utterson, the, the lawyer, goes for a walk on Sundays with his best friend Enfield. They're characterised, I think this is right, Robert, by their wish not to really talk about everything too deeply. Um, it's a nice walk that they have, and they don't really want to get too deep into any question that arises. But Enfield, very nervously, as it were, does feel he must describe something to Artisan, And that is that he's seen this man, very quickly as Hyde, suddenly encounter in his walk a small, a young child running in the opposite direction, and Hyde walks straight across his child, trampling the child underfoot, and that's the most first most terrible incident within the novel. However, in talking about it, Enfield says to um, Utterson, it's nothing to hear, hellish to see, and I want to look at those the equation of the disconnection between hearing and hearing and seeing within the no, within, we call it a novel or novella a small whatever Whether we call it a short story, whatever it is, um, I want to look at what is hearing and what is seeing, because I think those two are held very explicitly in tension, in tension, T-E-N-S-I-O, in tension with each other, by Stevenson. Because I see this as a novel in which there are a lot of things held in tension in that way, that he's actually talking about, if you like, um, evidence that would come from hearing as opposed to evidence which will come from seeing, and they're two rather different uh, modalities. And I was thinking about this, because I think there are modalities in history, in our own thinking, both today and way back, as well. For example, um, Freud, I come from, I'm here as a psychoanalyst to talk to you in a sense. Um, Freud thought it was very important when Moses forbade been able to be icons of God, that actually if you had to think God, without seeing a visual representation, you have moved on intellectually. It was a mental construction rather than a visual construction. It was a, So seeing is more primitive. Um, dreams use a modality that is more primitive as a dominant one. We do hear things in dreams rather occasionally. We mostly see things in dreams. And this was a dream that elicited this, this story. And well, most writes writes very interestingly about the amorality of what he calls his brownness in the dream of people He, the conscious writer, is the ethical person. Unfortunately, he says, but the 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 dream the dreamers, so to speak, is brownies who see and are are not, uh, are, uh, are not the, uh, they're creative like they good sort of hives in a sense. They're very creative, um, but they're not very responsible um, ethical people. Okay, so it's henish to see, but it's nothing to hear. And I think that that becomes, if you like, a move from seeing as evidence, and I'm not a lawyer at all, so I'm asking the lawyers evidence of seeing something as evidence to evidence as testimony when you hear something and there's acts of protection held for you within, within the novel a, a more recent example of Moses in the, in the Bible as it were um, perhaps give you a quality of what I'm talking about, I was in a small French village, which Mickey knows um, the other week and uh, talking to a friend in the village who said to me, we were talking about um, the release of prisoners who have not been found anything wrong and have been charged with being innocent in Guantanamo and the release of them? And she said, yes, but when you see them in cages, you do see that they really are evil. And I sort of took, took a step backwards and thought, wait a minute, I thought it was the cages that were evil, but actually, the visual representation of a person in a cave, to this, in a cage, sorry, to this person made them look, made those people look evil. So I think there's something we have to still very much bear in mind. Because I think as, as Nikki was implying, we still have this attribution of character, which is what happens under terrorism. We attribute in a way by character. And um, but we also have the other which is listening to testimony. And they're two they're two time scales in a way, they're the primitive and the more sophisticated, but they coexist. They don't move unfortunately from one to the other in a neat transition to, to the more sophisticated Ethical one of, of hearing and, and seeing. So I wanted to, uh, if you remember, those of you who have read the novel, it's seeing, and you point this out in the introduction, Robert, that it's a maid, Sidney, uh, God knows why this maid is alone in this beautiful huge house, but she is at the top window, and she sees the murder that Hyde commits later in the novel of the very good person, Carew. And it's, it's very she faints because she's seen something so evil. But it's actually the recent testimony that of everything, and it is a written narrative, so it's a written narrative about seeing, but it's also about hearing within the narrative, so those two come together, the primitiveness of seeing, which we still do, and the more sophisticated modality of hearing, which we return turn to. And I wanted to link that nothing to hear, hellish to see, to another quotation, which is uh, from, so to speak, um, Jekyll Hyde, I struck, and this is the murder, I struck in no more reasonable spirit than that in which a sick child may break a plaything. Now, if I say I think Hyde is Jekyll's child, or the child within Jekyll, I don't mean that in terms of that we see a nice child wandering around the novel. Uh, We obviously don't. And the wonderful, which I would agree with Nikki, the wonderful writer quality of this, the wonderful construction of the novel, Slippages and mistakes. within it. Um, you know, you're the expert on that. Um, but, uh, back in a minute. but I think if we look analytically so to speak at the, the, the writing from it, I think there's a very interesting feature of the, of the story which is that though everybody experiences uh, Hyde both to visually see him, to come near him is to come near evil and to be horrified and to be as frightened and upset as he is. Indeed. That's not so for Jekyll who is after all Hyde. Throughout he is actually always, as it were, not only tolerant but rather excited by Hyde, likes him, makes a will in his favour, so that if Hyde lives longer than the Jekyll part of the one, so to speak, he, he she will have enjoy all the Jekyll benefits of a, an, an eminent career and well-paid career, the money that comes from the family, etc., all go to Hyde, because Jekyll is actually very favourable towards him and says some very strong things in that direction. He says well actually I can't you know, every I can see that everybody hates him as soon as they go into a name they're worldted. But I I Jekyll have never been like that. I've always actually got time and interest in the energy, the excitement, the sort of creative personality in, in one sense of this very destructive person. Now, again, Robert in his introduction points out that at the time um, the notion that ontology repeats phylogeny was very, very dominant. That, that what we're doing in our individual histories is what we do in our collective, in the repetition of our collective history. It was one that was very familiar and very important to Freud as well. And at that point, again, you say this rather, um, the primitive was not only the savage, the degenerate, the criminal, but also the child. And they were, as it were, equated. Those those groups and others probably too were the same. And it, insofar as I think it is a like psychanalyst, it's that child of those, that group of primitives that I think we also have in Hyde. And it's very sort of thing, it's the child in Robert Stevenson that he knows about that has led him to be able to create this character. He after all is not a degenerate. He is not a criminal. He is not a savage. But he has indeed been a child, as, a, as a, the author has been a child, as we all have, and uh, as, as was indeed the basis of psychoanalysis. He realizes that the child is, if you like, evil in some senses. Um, now, because we turn from an asocial being up to the age of two, three, four, five, to a social being afterwards. We have this question: How do we do that? Now, if you think about that first instance of Hyde trampling on that child, now those of you who have got children, if, if you've had a, about a two and a half year old who's had a new baby brother or sister, it is not at all unusual to see that toddler trample over that baby brother or sister. That is perfectly, so to speak, acceptable. You parents will come in, hopefully, and say, no, and stop it, taking it away. I, cause I'm interested in siblings. I've been observing, actually, twins since before they were born, till they're now six years old, and they've watched them move from exactly that sort of asocial trampling over babies, and stealing and fighting each other's for toys, and being, I mean, I was forgotten. I mean, I have a child, but I mean, I, you know, just, very grown up, um, I'd forgotten quite how violent children are with each other up to, a, up to a certain point. And I did actually bring you a short quotation from a child analyst who added this very much to... Uh, now, you can say that this is a child she's seeing in treatment, is Melanie Klein, but Melanie Klein's point, is all like psychoanalysts' point, is exactly, uh, I think Stevenson's point is that we are two people in one, we are that asocial child right through our lives and given something traumatic that happens to us, we can reverse to that very, very easily. And I'm very interested in the role of male hysteria in this novel, because that's an example of when we revert mm. to this sort of primitive child in ourselves. This is uh, Gunther, a child that, that Melanie Klein describes As I say, she says very clearly, as all animals, normal people are like this too. But Gunther, age six, Uh, had a sexual life almost entirely lacking in positive elements. In his fantasy, the various sexual procedures he undertook were nothing but a series of cruel and subtle tortures designed in the end to put his object to death. That's a six-year-old. That's that's the child. That's the child in height. It's not the picture that we get. We get the picture of pure evil, because that's the technique of the novel. That's the whole point. They are one character. Jekyll is Hyde. And where you see mistakes, and I'm not, I mean, did write it past but you know, so Dickens, and these people are very expert. I'm not sure how much those mistakes were, from, anyway, for me, those mistakes were, as it were, the clues to us knowing that Jekyll was Hyde much earlier than the confession to, to Lanyon. And if we, as you did with Gabriel, I, I was looking at names. Lanyon, the lawyer is hasty his first name, he sure is hasty Utterson, he does indeed utter on, Mm -hmm. and then I wondered about Jekyll, who of course it's a very common name, Gertrude Jekyll the Gardner etc, etc, but Stevenson was very, very into French literature for this, for the um, material behind this novel Hyde, H-Y-D-E there's a pun within the novel, which is Hyde, H-I-D-E, Hyde and Seek is a pun within the novel, he's hidden within the Jekyll character Jekyll, if you change the Y to an I, is je kill, I kill. So Jekyll is the person who kills. He is Hyde. And I think that what you are calling mistakes may indeed, you right, you know it, I don't, they may indeed be mistakes. But one that you mentioned uh, before the talk, uh, in what I read of your writing, you say how we can't understand why Utterson so wanted to see Hyde, because then he would know what had gone wrong for Jekyll. It was an earlier draft in which the idea was that um, Hyde was an illegitimate child who was blackmailing Jekyll and he changed this because he didn't want that in the, in the final version but he left in Utterson's culture kind of to see now I would relate that to the primitive need to see character that he intentionally left in as in a sense of clue that he did need to see this person to get an image of what was, what was going on and that links back to this primitive way in which people need to see to understand um, I've, I've got much more that I could go on with that, but I think we should stop and open it to the audience. But I want to link, therefore, the primitive child in the construction, not in the actual effect of the writerliness of the, of, the, of the novel. I mean, Hyde comes over as pure evil, and what Stevenson has effectively achieved, I think, is, after he knew the story... He knew what he was writing about, whether it was a dream or not, he certainly knew what it's about, and he in his writings on dreams says his own role um, is to know what it's about. And he knew that they were one character. And that's what's interesting. What the drug, which we initially told is a neutral drug, um, we then told actually it was probably in an impure version of a neutral drug, but anyway, and this neutral drug makes is one person a split so that one person is pure evil. The other is not pure good, the other is rather tolerant of that pure evil. But of course, because nowhere is there ever pure evil, but there is in hide pure evil, then of course people are revolted by that. So that when we see a, a child, and I think this still pertains today, I was thinking of those two boys that recently have been uh, you know, accused of torturing almost to death their two children in north England. Um, I think we have a different reaction to child criminality than we have in the public mind. Child criminality does shock us in a way that the adult doesn't quite, and I think it's an interesting question here, because if we see the child within Stevenson informing the creation of the degenerate, the savage, the sep- the pure evil within Hyde, I think we ask some different que- questions of the novel, and I think we see the incredible construction of how we do know throughout, through hints that it's one person, that we don't know it, we are disturbed by it. it's part of our disturbance in the novel in fact exactly he makes it to until we learn at the end it's one.
0: Um, I, I wonder obviously we have a great deal to, to reflect on already before we turn it over to the audience maybe I could abuse my, my role as chair I just raise a couple of questions for, for the panel um, one actually relates to what juliet has been saying about the difference between hearing and seeing and I guess from a, from a sort of legal perspective Hearing, of course, is very problematic in the late 19th century because this is the, he- the heyday of hearsay. It's the point where mm-hmm. um, the, the, the evidential law of hearsay is really sort of um, uh, making its mark, so to speak. And the anxiety of hearsay is an anxiety about the fabrications. of evidence. Mm-hmm. And if you ask, well, what is the, where does that anxiety about fabrication come from? Well, arguably it comes from precisely the sort. sort of kind of maybe goes back to the questions about writing. One of the things that struck me in the novel was the way in which whatever else is kind of in transition or, or so on, the writing remains constant. And um, high um, check writing remains recognizable to the point where he can, as high, write the letter that enables him to sort of save himself, so to, uh, to land um, and I wonder whether there is a connection there first of the rise of profology.
5: sorry I haven't actually read it (laughs) but but it strikes me that um, there's a geographical bipolarity in um, Victorian and earlier novels of the 19th century where the, 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 the aristocratic male or the genteel male for huge stretches of time leaves the country house to do business in town Um, where you know that he is getting up to all sorts of things it's sometimes quite explicit like in the tenant of Wildfell Hall or in um, uh, even Mr. Rochester um, being catered to in every kind of sexual perversion by hordes of lower class prostitutes so you have that geographical bipolarity um, uh, where where people males are living two lives and this becomes developed in in the later 19th century
2: well there's um, you mentioned that there's the uh, Sherlock Holmes story of the man with the twisted lip which I think, which was 1891 which uh, was only sort of four years after Jekyll and Hyde and I think it's kind of answer to that because you have this chap who who does come in from the suburbs and um, he actually um, he's a beggar He he lives by begging, because he makes so much money, by making himself hideous, by making himself this sort of hide figure, where he twists his lip up and and puts this ginger syrup on his head, and and, and he's, he's described as the most revolting person, because he's so... He's so ugly, he elicits sympathy and, and money. And he he comes in each day, tells his wife, who he loves and he's supporting, that he's doing something in the city, and that's exactly that. I and mean, it's really interesting. I think it's an answer to Jacqueline Hyde because it is solved by rational means. The very thing that um, Utterson wasn't able to do, Holmes is able to do. He just sits up all night smoking his pipe and thinking, and then he says, I've got it I was blind as a mole not to see so this is the whole kind of idea of visibility they go back into town from the suburb he brings a bath sponge out of the um I don't know if you know the story but they um so if you don't know this won't make any sense to you but he manages to kind of unhide um hide and may turn him into the jackal by simply a bit of you know spit here you go Wipe that off, and then suddenly it dissolves in front of him. And, 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 um, and um, Watson said, "I've never seen anything like that before." His face peeled off like a bark, and there he was. It's very similar to the transformation of Hyde into Jekyll, but it's done entirely by reasonable means of, of Holmes being Holmes and showing off and just simply thinking. And because it is within this rational space, this man who's been living a double life. Um, Because it's within this rational space, it's doable within a rational framework. And uh, so it kind of fits in that. It wasn't really depravity. He hung out in an opium den, but he was merely begging.
0: Any other... We can collect the
2: thought.
4: Thank you. Um, I'm interested in um, Hyde as the slime of the pit appearing on Earth. Um, I'm a teacher and I've just been teaching Oliver Twist recently. Um, Fagin also emerges out of the primeval slime and I wondered if you had any thoughts on um, any relationship there might be between the two.
6: in the something that I think runs through all four of your comments on Jekyll and Hyde which is in a sense the development of the uncanny um, the same period that Stevenson was writing Jekyll and Hyde the other genres of the uncanny were starting to come into the public or the written consciousness the ghost story what we might consider proto-science fiction and um, obviously as ever the myth or the fantasy of the changeling and um, I'm wondering now whether you could all comment on how these themes might have through Jekyll and Hyde might be recognizable today in questions for example cyborgs, the divisible self Um, something which can be displaced out of the human through science, but also not quite escape, I suppose, what you called the the roots of humanity at the same time. So this is more of a literary theory question, but I wondered if you could comment on it.
5: I haven't read the book, but seen parts of the movie, <laughs> 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 not, not the whole me- movie even, but uh, I, I think I get get the story a little bit. Uh, just, just wanted to ask you, uh, the, the way it's been presented, the, the theme of the novel, uh, is that uh, evil and good lies within the person. But there is no discussion about the social context or circumstances in which evil is more likely or good is more likely to happen. So I just wanted you to reflect on that. I think we have two
0: more.
4: My question is related to the one just asked. I'd like to know something about the notion of evil in law today, in psychoanalysis today. Um, The French always talk about a mauvais caractere. Uh, Judges say that you are pure evil. But is anyone pure evil, or is it only that there are evil deeds? I'd like your thoughts on that, please. Hi, Thank you. Um, I
1: was actually quite interested less in the binary, I guess, of good and evil, but more in the role of imagination and deviance, and the idea that the criminal law actually is sort of a social control mechanism linked to, someone said something about patriarchy, so thinking about actually is this more about imagination and dreaming of deviance rather than good versus evil. Thank
0: thank you very much for the week, and I'll go back to our
4: I'll start, I'll start with the first order, then the, the last question about good and evil. Um, I think, from with, in psychoanalysis, it, it wasn't a concept used very much in the early days of psychoanalysis because they, at that point, the real, if you like, discovery was this sense that there is a complete continuum between what in this novel would we call moral insanity or, or total uh, neurosis or psychosis. The, hysteria or the psychotic deluded person, and the normal person, and there was a continuum along that line, so that you wouldn't have the concept of pure evil and pure good. That everybody was, as Stevenson says in this work, a mixture of both. Um, I think more because exactly people do talk quite a lot about, you know, the, the evils t- uh, again today. I mean, it was talked about, of course, in the late 19th century. I don't mean it wasn't, but the whole thrust of psychoanalysis was against that sort of division of of good and evil, That it was seen as not what what was being observed in terms of uh, understanding the unconscious versus the conscious. Um, Now there are more discussions of of evil. I think what one, as a working definition one might say, that something seems evil when somebody has absolutely no regard for the of the, or for the other, for the object, for the other person at all, it's completely but it's completely extreme of a psychopathic personality, that extreme could be, could be near to evil because there's no concern whatsoever and that would be understood in terms of what has happened in that transition from what I was describing is the still largely asocial child who can be indeed very violent luckily they're only a child so they're not tied. Uh, the, the toddler who the baby is only a child and isn't likely, though things do happen, quite serious things do happen, but isn't likely to to kill it because of their own weakness and because parents are there, but if that part, part becomes totally asocial forever, so to speak, and has no concern for the other, then it could develop into something that seems like I think it would really be seen as something being evil in a context, and here again the social context would come into it, and it wouldn't be for the whole personality for all time. But usually we think of, uh, this goes back to Nikki's points about her interest in responsibility, I think that the, even in the most deluded state, there is all which would be a very unconscious state, there's also a conscious part of the self that can watch it, can look at the unconscious part and what that's doing. And that part has responsibility for the other part too, so to speak. So, And the whole point, thrust of analytical therapy is, or analysis, psychoanalysis, like analysis or just therapy, is to actually bring as much as possible into consciousness so then you can decide what to do with it, so to speak. But it stays unconscious and you don't know about it. But that's where the, the evil would, would lie in that lack of any meaning of another person whatsoever, that they mean nothing. So that's, what I, I mean, I there are lots of other questions I, think I was very interested about the, the countryside city that seems a very interesting uh, division that I think is still with us in some ways it's not in social practice so much with us but we do see I think we still do have that sort of embargo in our minds about division between relatively in uh, innocent countryside versus the evils of town and there's a, there's a sort of reality base which is that, that um, it's just much more stressful to live in fantastically in know a slum planet of it's been called that we're moving towards as, a, as the world divides more into the, the extremely rich and the extremely poor as the world is going increasingly that way and our own country being a prime example of it and um, people who are living in planets, some, some are living in such conditions of social stress as to go to the social question that it's actually much harder to, to have concern for other people, to, back to my definition of where we would look for somebody who would be likely to express an evil parts of their personality.
3: Um, I thought that one of the themes that perhaps pulled some of the the questions together um, was the idea about revelation because one of the things that that strikes me about the period in which Stevenson writes Jekyll and Hyde is it's also the period in which um, and this is a material which appears in many, many textbooks on, on criminology. People thought you could measure criminal's foreheads to see, you know, who was evil, the the criminally degenerate person was actually physically identifiable. Now that kind of extreme literalness, you know, which is often associated in literature um, with, you know, an unkempt appearance with what Fagin looks like, with Fagin sort of particular um, racial characteristics. Always, is very often presented in the 20th century as something that we educate ourselves out of as if, you know, and those very photographs those late 19th century photographs of criminal types with narrow foreheads is actually presented as well look how far we've come we now know this is nonsense but where we present ourselves as having got to is a position of course in which we look for other signs of evil and in which we hold very much more often the social world as the site of the the generation of evil rather than something that lies within the individual. I mean, I think the disjunction between the city and the country uh, is a very important one which dominates uh, English culture from the 18th century. I mean, the city is always seen as a place of sin, fear, murder, disruption, criminality, vice, various kinds. Alan Poe's novels in the 1840s happen in the real world. They don't happen in the middle of the countryside. You know, and, and, and it's that kind of sense of the closeness of, of human beings to each other which somehow creates a social stress which, relates it, which, which evolves into terrible things happening. So what I find interesting is the sense in which as I say, we've, we, we, we think we've moved away from these literal representations and revelations of evil, but I do wonder actually how far we've got because it does seem to me that very often we look for other forms of identifiable evil um, in character, uh, in personality, and indeed still in appearance. So what what other questions? you've somehow come a long way with the kind of um, material that was around at the time that Stevenson was writing, Jackie, and I think it's also important, just as one final biographical
2: Interestingly he wrote it in
3: Bournemouth.
2: some of the some of the kind of vagueness about geography derives from that. But I think he had some maps, but it was gonna kind of, you know I think you know, just things leaves things quite vague and, and, and I'm gonna pick up on the city point as well because that's uh, I think one of the most fascinating things about nineteenth century literature of the Gothic period. Really, that um, the Gothic happened in the city in the 19th century when the women's sort of gothic came about it was the, the remote it was the countryside it was the it was over there it was in the, the, in the in the south of europe in castles and forests it's very much the sort of rural um, but in, in 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 the 19th century and with oliver twist a very a very very important book the gothic is placed within the heart of the city uh, but a demarcated area, in fact, not so very far from here, down towards Barringdon, um Smithfield, that area is where the slum is. And that's a demarcated area, it's a labyrinth, uh, but it's cheek by jowl with this district, by the, with the legal representing uh, civilisation, etc. And that's a demarcation that, that's, that's very, very important in the 19th century. What's really, really interesting about the difference between Oliver Twist and Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, that's completely disrupted. It's disrupted in two ways. Jekyll has his mansion, but you only have to go around the back to find this shabby, nasty little door that represents Hyde. And I think that's a kind of allegory of the Jekyll within the Hyde, that there is this kind of actually really existing within it, the same Strange little opening. I mean, it's the puzzle. It's the first puzzle of the book. You know, What's this strange little house? You know, that's what. The door, yes. But trying, but they are trying to work out how it fits. So it's, it's been built on, and you can't really work out how it, how it kind of fits. And they don't twig at that point. But that's actually part of Jekyll's Mansion, which I think is kind of, you know, if you want an allegory of what it's about, it, it, it's kind of there and there. But also it's this idea that so you've got this kind of allegory, this geographical, topographical allegory. But also the idea that you can't keep those divisions because you know all you, all you need to do is just go around the corner and you know the fog creeps in and the fog stops you being able to see the difference between these things as well. So it's really is about erasing those differences. Um, although I do think the most um, the, the the Dickens novel that's closest to it's actually Bleak House. You've got, you've got the fog, you've got the legal issues, you've got the identifying someone through their handwriting. And interestingly, in Bleak House, you've got uh, two people with the same name, John Dice and John Dice Warring. In Jekyll and Hyde, you've got one person with two different names, Warring within himself. So I think I there's think a kind of nod to to uh, to Bleak House actually when when there's that wonderful passage where they go into Soho and the, the fog descends and that's very much the you know, that is a nod to Dickens and it's a I mean, it's a sort of nod to when they're going to Tom All Alone and it's all kind of slimy etc. Et there's a lot of slime in those novels. But... Mm-hmm.
4: Um,
1: thank you for all those wonderful questions. I'm just going to again try and pick out a couple of themes I, I'm, I'm also interested in the city theme and I, I think you see that separation in Jekyll and Hyde as Robert was saying but what I thought you were also going to say because I think it's what you argue in your book is that there, there also isn't, I mean the thing is that that comforting idea that there is actually a physical separation isn't there in Jekyll and Hyde because it's disrupted by the, the unity of Jekyll and Hyde um, but the, the I haven't, I, it's a long time since I've read Oliver Twist and I'd forgotten about about Fagin. And I do think Dickens is very interesting because although I agree with you that Meek House is the obviously gothic Dickens, Dickens definitely drops elements of the gothic into many of his novels. About of 80% yeah, absolutely, of exactly. And, um, so I, you know, I think that's but it, it, it's all over the gothic tradition I'm thinking of uh, not just Hog which I'm not sure does quite count as gothic but is full of slime of the pit kind of language the just, confessions a justified sinner but also a marvellously exotic book called Zafloia by Charlotte Dacre I think which has again got somebody who is sort of on the one hand a mad and charismatic to be a historical Rasputin kind of figure, on another level, is definitely from way down there. Um, the city as the fount of evil, though, is really not confined to the Gothic. It seems to me. I mean, for example, in the emerging realist novel of the, and of course, these, there's a lot of debate about the uh, uh, borderli- uh, the boundaries between these different so-called different genres of, of, of literature, but um, I think London features as an object of enormous suspicion in the early realist novels I'm thinking for example of one of my favourite Smollett's, the expedition of Humphrey Clinker*, which involves a rather sort of intemperate gentleman going on travels round the uh, round the country, and when he finally gets to London, he basically compares everywhere, and it's mostly cities that he visits, uh, he compares everywhere unfavorably with his nice, comfortable home, but London does schools worst. Um, finally, this, this question about evil in law and in literature—the um, debate about whether evil is a is socially produced or inheres in people—goes right back to the beginnings of the novel. Things to me. It's absolutely not confined to the Gothic. What's interesting to me, though, is that there is a further division um, in the literature and indeed the law, which does sign up, in a sense, to uh, a theory of individual evil, evil nature, that there are what we might call sort of natural and supernatural accounts of that and it's the way those the the natural and the supernatural either in the ghost story type sense or in the theological sense uh, sit together in Hyde. that I think is really quite interesting because I think in many earlier books you get introduced basically the author comes down on one side or the other. Clearly as far as criminal law is concerned um there was a move in the 19th century towards a, a greater acknowledgement of either the natural, uh, i.e. scientific argument about sort of individual badness or the socially constructed one. Um, and I think that's, that um, duality has remained in law. And if you ask me about criminal law today, well, on the one hand, you know, evil in criminal law. is whatever the legislature says it is. And it might be, you know, having a dangerous dog or going to a rave, which is marvellously defined in the statute, or it might be committing murder or rape. Uh, it's all very sort of just what the law provides. But of course, when you get to the actual practice, the enactment of the judgment in judicial language, for example, particularly at the sentencing stage, those images of evil come right back in, and of course, that's what we read in our tabloid newspapers.
0: Indeed, not only our tabloids. But
2: Any further reflections, thoughts? I think this thing about pure evil I mean, I think what's really interesting about the text is that Hyde isn't pure evil. He starts to become a lot like Jekyll. I mean, I think one of the, or even. I and mean, what's really interesting is this kind of, I think it goes back to this kind of um, father and son type analogy. It struck me that um, when Hyde is acting like Jekyll, he's like a teenager that occasionally has to be nice to dad so he can borrow the car. He actually <laughs> talks about
4: the indifference uh, son's indifference to her father key. at one point. Mm, that's
2: yes. key. Because, you know, the whole thing, if you think about it, the first thing you hear about is the story about Hyde trampling the child and then rounding on him, and he said, first thing you, we hear Hyde saying is, no gentleman but cares about his reputation. He ain't a gentleman. This this slum-dwelling degenerate, pure evil, He doesn't care. He cares. This is bourgeois Jekyll. He gets out a check, and he worries, worries about his reputation. And the whole point of Hyde is that Hyde, that um, Jekyll, could get away with being purely on that side, so he can have his alibi to all his... His dirty tricks for him, and so he can get away with it. He doesn't get away with it because Hyde has a good deal of the Jekyll in him. And it's really interesting to see, this is what I mean about the slippages, and when, when Jekyll talks about himself and starts becoming Hyde-like in his description, because he is mixed, it's the mixed part of Hyde as well that makes it a really interesting play, I think, where we can kind of see him acting, you know, acting quite bourgeois, acting quite responsibly. I think there's a few kind of puzzles on why he does something or why he says something. It sounds a lot like Jekyll. So he's is literally a chip off the old block. Well, he is the old block. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
0: I guess we should all now go off and reckon with the fact that our inner child is not cute. Um, uh, As we do so, perhaps we could um, extend thanks to our speakers.